it? Andy. Oh. Hello, Andy. Welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast that asks a lot of questions and gets some pretty interesting answers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. This episode, episode 16, features an interview from 2009 with the noted writer Sarah Shulman, the author of After Dolores, Shimmer, People in Trouble, Rat Bohemia, Stage Struck, and many others. I chatted with Sarah about, among other things, her keen interest in Wilhelm Reich, her self-admitted graphomania, film festival she co-directs every year in New York with Jim Hubbard, and the documentary that she and Jim made about the activist organization ACT UP, called United in Anger, A History of ACT UP. Appearing in some of Sarah's family anecdotes will be Woody Allen, Richard Nixon, James Baldwin, and Alexander Kerensky. Who was Alexander Kerensky? Well, you'll find out. Just listen. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. I just turned 50 on Monday. Congratulations. Thank you. I had a big party, and it was a really great day. Well, Jack thinks that if you don't do something big and notable on your 50th birthday, you kind of doom yourself to uh, you know, a less than, than wonderful old age because you didn't, you didn't celebrate or, or at least recognize such a milestone in a significant way. Well, there you go. Well, then I'm going to have a great old age because I had a great party. What, what about you? Well, I'm, I've been 50 now for a couple of years. And how did you celebrate it? Um, I had a big party here in the house, mm-hmm. invited almost everybody, mm-hmm. hired someone to play the accordion wearing a Venetian gondoliers outfit. Oh, my God. And he strolled around playing the accordion. <laughs> and we actually had the affair catered. Yeah. I mean, we've never, we've never, it's always been a potluck or whatever. We've never done a catered party. I've never hired a musician. But going along with Jack's theory, um, I wanted to make it a, you know, a party to remember. And like most parties, it was kind of a blur for me, the host. We ordered way too much food and we give everybody big plates of food as they left, which was nice, <laughs> but, you know, we could have spent half on the food. So, I, you know, I learned a few things. Right. <laughs> I can remember them for my 60th party. Good. That's now, great. Was, was your party at your place, or was it in a public place? No. Um, for years, I had parties on my roof, but my building is falling down. So we had it in my friend's Squatterda community garden 12 years ago, and it's called Le Petit Versailles. Uh-huh. And they let me have my party there. Where's that? It's on 2nd Street between Avenue B and Avenue C. It's really beautiful. Is that the only... Garden of its kind? I mean, I know I no, remember a story there's about... there's a bunch of them left still. Yeah, there's about 15 of them, I would say, left in the neighborhood. Well, that's good. I mean, we have, um, I guess they call them neighborhood gardens here, um, where people can grow, a lot of people grow vegetables in them. Yeah, you can do that, but you know what comes if you do that. Rats. Oh, right. So you have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> it is New York. Hey, let me ask you a few um, questions I always ask my guests. Okay. What did you have for breakfast? I had iced coffee for breakfast. And was there cream and sugar in the iced coffee or just... There was just regular milk and no sugar. Okay. Regular meaning whole milk or 2%? Whole milk. Whole Whole milk. milk. Very good. Um, What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I like vanilla. Hmm. And do you put anything on it or do you just have it? No. I like it. Uh-huh. And now, are you at home? Are you in the um, apartment that I have visited? Yes. 
I am at home in my apartment where I've lived for 30 years. Remind me what you see out the window right now when you turn and look out the nearest window. Well, I have two. I have a southern exposure and an eastern exposure. If I look on the east, I see a beautiful landscape of rooftops of all different shades of brown and red brick that goes for blocks. And if I look out on the south, I see trees because I overlook a rear garden of a restaurant called the Yasa Cafe. So I see trees, and if I look down, I see people eating. I'm very well positioned except for one major drawback, which is a six-floor walk-up. Oh, well, it's keeping you young, or it's making you prematurely old. Well, I have very low blood pressure because of all the cardio I've been doing for 30 years. You see? See? The only problem is my friends are too old to come visit me now. You mean there, you actually have friends who say, oh, I can't come over there, it's too far? Many. Really? Many. Well, I'm 50, so I have friends who are in their 60s and 70s. Of course, yeah. They don't want to come up. Well, um, we have so much to talk about, but I want to first find out what's uppermost in your mind, whether it's something you're working on or something that happened this morning or, you know, what's, what's going on in your world? What's uppermost in my mind? I, on, on Thursday morning, I will be going on a solo pilgrimage to the home of Wilhelm Reich, one of my heroes which is in northwest Maine in a remote area called Wrangley Lake. And that's something that I've wanted to do for decades, and I'm going to do it. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I'm very excited. Now, I'm, I know a little bit about Reich, but... He has a lot of great ideas. I'll tell you one of them. Okay. He said, you know, when a starving person steals a loaf of bread, that's something that we can all understand. But when a starving person does not steal a loaf of bread, that is very troubling. Mm -hmm. And that's what he really spent his life trying to understand. So he wrote this kind of amazing book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism, trying to understand how people were made, how fascist personalities are developed and how people are created as passive. And because that was his life's work, he was very threatening to a lot of people because if you actually try to make people with power be accountable, they become very vicious. <laughs> yeah. So he was sort of thrown out of kind of everything. He was thrown out of the Communist Party. He was thrown out of the psychoanalytic movement. You know, he tried to bring them together. And that didn't really work because psychoanalysis is, is focused on the individual to the exclusion of creating large social change. And communism has never been able to meet the needs of the individual. So when you try to bring those two worlds together, you end up with two constituencies that are very threatened. Then he was actually thrown out of Sweden, which I think is something that most, that's very hard to find anyone who experienced that. <laughs> well, what was the reason? I, I don't know the exact reason, but I think it had to do with his sex. You know, he had this movement called Sex Pole, sexual politics. He invented the idea of sexual politics in the 30s. And what he would do is he would go into working class neighborhoods and say, do you know why you have a terrible sex life? It's because you have overcrowded housing. So fight for better housing so that you can have a good sex life. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, his fatal flaw 
was that he tried to find a biological explanation for his very brilliant social theories. And that just has never really worked. So he, I mean, he was correct in saying that people's experiences affect them biologically. We all know now that that's true, but it's really more neurological. So you have brain changes based on your experiences, but he was too early in the century to really know that. So he identified this thing he called orgone, the life force, like chi. It's basically just the electricity that runs through your body. Mm-hmm. And he felt that when people experience sexual repression, their orgone is literally blocked and they produce diseases like skin diseases and things like that. So in other words, he tried to make biological something that's really metaphoric. And this is when he got in trouble. So he was conducting all these experiments to prove that orgone exists. And where I'm going, there is the Wilhelm Reich Observatory, and I hope to be able to observe orgone, even though I know it doesn't really exist. But, you know, it's one of those cases of ideology creating reality, basically. Uh, so he built these famous orgone boxes, Will, and William Burroughs had one. And they were, it was a box made of pure materials, no synthetic materials that's supposed to facilitate your, the streaming of your orgone. But, so the FDA came after him. And he is the only person in the history of the United States to have his books seized and burned and destroyed. And he was put in prison and died in prison in America. One of those people like Emma Goldman or Leon Trotsky, you know, if you have an ideology that no one with false power should be able to maintain it, you always end up in profound trouble. But anyway, so I'm going to his home and museum and observatory on a pilgrimage. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been inside of an orgone box? No, I've never seen one. But I will see one when I get there. Do you know Jeffrey Scholar? He was raised um, with an orgone box in the in the household. Oh. And they were required to sit in it, you know, a certain amount of, of the day. I also read Orson Bean's autobiography. Oh, Me and the Orgone? Right. <laughs> and he talks about the, his um, Reichian therapist poking him and poking him till he was bruised to to soften or open these blocks, again, maybe using more of a physical model than a metaphysical model. Well, they used touch. I mean, he was the, he was the person who introduced touch to psychoanalysis, hmm. and they they did some you know they did borderline abusive things in those days because of how gendered it all was. But they would have the patient stripped down to her underwear, and then they would use certain kinds of things that I think meld with things like Laban technique and stuff that later were used for things like biofeedback and a lot of the. Esalen 60s encounter stuff kind of is derived from him. Mm -hmm. Some of it became abusive. But, yeah, well, yeah, I know. See, there's. I actually have a collection of memoirs of writing patients. Neat. (laughs) So I have that Orson Bean one. Oh, good, yeah. I don't know how I happened upon it, but I think it was just on a shelf or something, and I remembered him as a panelist on a TV show called um, To Tell the Truth. Tell the Truth. (laughs) Well, I guess he tried to get healed at some point, as everyone seems to try. I mean, he was somewhat skeptical, but he seemed to be basically enthusiastic about the whole experience. Well, some people were so loyal to Reich. I mean, there's a very incredible biography of him by one of his students called Fury on Earth. 
the student was so loyal to him that he basically allowed his wife to have a sexual relationship with Rice. You know, he was one of these very brilliant, kind of crazy, charismatic people, and that can always get out of control. I mean, Reich was anti-gay. You know, he believed in heterosexuality. I didn't know that. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, he made a lot of mistakes. But I think his basic ideas about um, how, you know, repression is used to create conformity is, is now obviously true. And because he lived through the Nazi era, he really observed it in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I rented a car and I reserved a room at Loon Lodge. And we'll see. Um, You're, in my mind, an amazingly prolific worker. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about your career in activism and and a a lot of um, things associated with your writing, but just the writing alone. I mean, what is it, like nine or ten novels? Um, Yeah. I've written, I have graphomania, I finally realized, like the Marquis de Sade. Is that how you do it? <laughs> it's some kind of weird... Well, I recently found out that I have too many platelets. And the doctor <laughs> told me I have the blood of a 25-year-old male and the body of a 50-year-old female. So maybe that's what it's all about. It's nothing to do with character or discipline or anything. It's just like excess platelets. I'm now using that to explain some things about myself that I've never been able to understand, like why I write so much. Well, I picture you like uh, one of those uh, Chinese acrobats, you know, spinning a whole bunch of plates. Yeah. Too many, too many plate, small plates. But the thing is, it's my natural state. <laughs> I feel very comfortable that way. I'm like an apparatus. I'm like a living apparatus. And as much as I've published, I have so much unpublished work. I have as much unpublished work as published work. So it's even scarier than you realize. <laughs> oh, I don't find it scary at all. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm kind of envious. I'm efficient. You're efficient. Very efficient. Mm-hmm. I am an efficient thinker and efficient doer. Like, things don't ever get out of, I, you know, I don't get overwhelmed. I take care of all my ideas, and I take care of my relationships and my obligations and promises. And I really don't think it's because I'm, like, a great person. It's some kind of biological thing. But anyway, I'm pretty reliable on all fronts. When did you publish your first novel? Well, my first novel was published in 1984, and I was born in 58, so I would think I was 25 when it came out. Mm -hmm. But it was, of course, finished two years before that, because it takes a long time to get a publisher. That's always been true for me. That's taken a long time to get things published. Even at this point? Oh, now it's even harder, because as I, I'm always... I believe, ahead, or you could say completely out of sync with my time. (laughs) Uh So everything I've ever produced has been unusual to its moment. And depending on the moment, if it's a progressive moment, then people welcome something that's new. But if you're in a moment like we've been in for a very long moment, then anything that's actually innovative is considered very bad. And familiarity and repetition are considered signs of quality. So as I get become a better and better writer, and as my understanding of things becomes deeper, I become more out of sync with my time because our time we're in a retrograde time. It does affect me emotionally, but how I feel about it doesn't affect my functionality. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of those people like even if I'm very very frightened, it doesn't affect my behavior. 
Uh-huh. Like I can be very afraid, but it doesn't mean I have to act according to my fear. So, you know, I have a lot of bad feelings about, you know, that sort of thing, but it doesn't affect the part of me that enjoys having ideas and developing them and, and making things out of them. Do you find that you write in a way strategically for the times, or do you write in your own timeless way? Well, if I try to write something, like, I'm so out of touch with how truly banal everything is. Like, sometimes I'll think, oh, I'll just dumb this down, and then I'll have something that's palatable. And I dumb, 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 dumb it down so far, so far, and then it's still, like, not dumb enough. I don't have an accurate sense of how dumb it really has to be. So, you know, I've tried. I've tried to do that, but it hasn't really worked. And which of your novels did you dumb down the most? Um... God, I just, let's see. Well, The Child, which was my latest novel, which was the hardest one to publish, was the most censored thing I've ever written. When I first wrote it, I thought it was going to be like a huge success because I structured it like a John Grisham novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was kind of like, in a John Grisham novel, there's like the, the lawyer slash detective slash cop, and then there's like the case that they're on and the case is its own narrative and the protagonist lawyer slash detective slash cop has their own narrative and the two interact. Mm -hmm. So I thought, Oh, that's a bestseller structure. So I use that structure and I thought, wow, I'm using a commercial structure, but I didn't count on the fact that the content, which was a sexual romantic relationship between a 15 year old boy and a 40 year old man was going to make the book unpublishable, <laughs> regardless of what the structure was. Wait a minute, you didn't realize that? I didn't. Well, because not only did I underestimate how um, backwards our culture was going, but I also underestimated the whole kind of predator mania that's overtaken the country in the last 10 years. So, like, the priest scandal, the internet predator, the you know, all that kind of stuff. I completely did not understand how censorious all of that was. Well, how's the book been doing? Well, let's see. It took eight years to get a publisher. Yikes. And I finally got one because of Diamanda Galas. Do you know who she is? I do indeed. What's the connection? Ran into her on the street, and she was said, I haven't seen a book from you in years. And I said, yeah, I have this book and I can't get it published because of this. it has this intergenerational relationship and I don't, you know, in the book, I'm very objective about the relationship. I don't come out against it or say that it's wrong or right. I just show it as the people in it experienced it, which is what I thought art was. But apparently when it comes to that subject, you are not allowed to do that. So she took out her cell phone and she called this gay man who kind of, you know, worshipped her as she deserves to be worshipped, who was a book editor. And she said, I'm sending you Sarah Shulman. Treat this sister with respect. And this guy, although I have to admit he was not very respectful, but in the end he did end up publishing my book. But then the week it was printed, his imprint was folded by the parent company. So the book just got printed. It never actually... It got... It never really got published. It did not keep gay people from getting hold of it. And so, you know, I had plenty of reviews in the gay press and gay people were reading it and I got nominated for these gay book awards, but it kept straight people from ever reviewing it. 
So it ended up in this very strange reality where it was appreciated only within the LGBT media circumference, but not a single straight venue acknowledged that it existed. But so then the question was, well, what's going to happen to the paperback? Because the publisher was out of business. Finally, I decided to publish the paperback with this Canadian press because I'd been having some good experiences in Canada and I found them not censorious and doing very kind of beautiful books. This press just reissued a book of mine called Rat Bohemia and they, on their own initiative, solicited an absolutely stunning cover from Nan Golden that is so beautiful. And they just did a great job with two of my reissues. So I was so moved by all of that that I decided to just publish the paperback with them. So now the paperback's going to come out in September from Canada, and it will be available in the United States. And it's part of this long tradition of people having to leave the United States because of censorship to have their work produced. You must be working on a novel now or maybe a play? Andy, I'm working on so many things that if I told you, you would have me incarcerated. I'm telling you. It's It's sick. It's it's like, I'm, I can't even tell you what they all are because I would be embarrassed. But I'm working on a lot of things. Okay. And um, how many novels? Two. How many plays? About five. <laughs> Two nonfiction books, three screenplays, and three TV pilots. And I'm working on the ACT UP Oral History Project. Along with Jim Hubbard, who I also know. Jim and I have been collaborators for 23 years. We started the Mix Festival 23 years ago. And tell my listeners what the Mix Festival is. Oh, it's the New York Lesbian and Gay Experimental Film Festival. You can't get much more esoteric than that. You say that, but, you know, probably upwards of 20,000 people have come. We've had spinoffs in Brazil and Mexico. Uh, we have fed many films to things like the Berlin Film Festival. There was two years where we sent more films to the Whitney Biennial than any other film festival. We showed first films by Maria Magenti, Todd Haynes, um, Jenny Livingston, Christine Vachon, you know, all these kind of people and all this kind of stuff. And most importantly, we've made it possible for artists to be created by having a venue so people could imagine themselves making work that could be seen. So now there are people showing work in mix who are not born when we started it which is really kind of amazing and wonderful. But anyway, so Jim and I, this is our second project. We started it in 2001, and our goal is to interview every surviving member of ACT UP New York. ACT UP was, it stands up for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It was the direct action wing of the AIDS activist movement. It was founded in 1987, and it, it had a vanguard of about, you know, a thousand people, I would say. But it, it created this subculture nationally and internationally of tens of thousands of people. And I think it really transformed the way gay people thought about themselves. But more importantly, it was a group of despised people who had no rights, who were abandoned by their society and who were facing a terminal illness. And in the face of all of that, joined together and forced this country to change against its will thereby saving each other's lives. That's the story. When you look at it historically, it was very similar to the strategies of Martin Luther King that he lays out in his article, um, 
letter from Birmingham jail. And it wasn't deliberately the same strategy, but it turned out to be the same strategy, which is basically that you have to really be responsible intellectually and educate yourself so that you completely understand your issue. You have to make a proposal that is completely doable and reasonable to the powers that be. And when they refuse to do it, you should take direct action to force them to do it. So direct action can mean um, that when the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, refuses to allow life-saving drugs to become available, you go to the FDA and you literally physically shut them down. That when the Catholic Church says that they're not going to allow condom distribution in the New York City public schools, you literally walk into a mass and disrupt it. That when the New York Times refuses to cover AIDS, you fax them a mile of black paper so that they can't do anything else. It's physically inserting yourself into the system so that it cannot proceed until this extremely righteous necessity is addressed. And, you know, they were in many ways successful. I mean, I think anyone today in the world whose life is extended through AIDS medication or who receives any kind of social service or counseling or any kind of education is benefiting from the actions of ACT UP. And it was the last social movement in America to be successful. So the fact that no one's ever heard about it and hasn't been historicized is just another element of the huge silence that's pervading our country right now. And that's why we took on this project. So we have a website, actuporalhistory.org. And together we have now interviewed 94 people. Mm -hmm. And you can go to the website and you can watch five minutes of each interview and you can download the transcripts for free. And we have a waiting list of 146 people. And it's been one of the most fascinating things I've ever been involved with. It is an incredibly interesting group of people. Really fascinating. I mean, out of 94 interviews, I would say like six were boring. (laughs) You know, it's very... It's people who think individually. It is not received wisdom. Nobody repeats what anybody else has said. Hmm. You know, people are very confident about what they've done and very proud of what they've done, but they came to it for different reasons. They enacted it very individually, and the way that they express their relationship to what they've done is, is very specific. So it's been kind of a great experience. And then Jim has preserved 2,000 hours of archival footage of that period, and now he is putting together the interview material and the archival footage to make a feature film, which is called United in Anger, A History of Act Up. Hi, folks. This is Andy breaking in to remind you that this interview is a few years old. So flash forward to the present, and Sarah and Jim's documentary, United in Anger, A History of Act Up, is now completed and available. Check it out, won't you? Now, because President Obama had just been elected when this interview took place, I asked Sarah what she predicted about his term of office. Here's what she said. I think where we're going is that there's a huge, huge feeling of hope and high expectations around Obama that has um, energized a big part of the United States and the world, and that he will never be able to live up to that. Partially because of who he is, partially because of what it means to be President of the United States, and partially because of the other forces in this country that actually run the country, that oppose a lot of his policies. 
However, the hope and expectation of the people, I think, you know, when, when they become disappointed by him, that will create the possibility for new social movements. It's kind of like John Kennedy coming in and this new kind of idealistic American youth who wanted to join the Peace Corps and all this kind of thing. And then when, you know, instead of fulfilling the promise, we got the war in Vietnam, that kind of hope turned into revolutionary movements, social movements, and, and countercultural social change. And that's, you know, that's what I see coming. So I'm very excited about the next 10 to 15 years. Extremely excited. Oh, I'm always an incredible optimist. Are you kidding? I always think that people can do the right thing and that they're going to at any moment. That's how I operate. Then I asked Sarah to tell me about her latest novel at that time, a futuristic comedy called... It's called The Mere Future. The Mere Future. Yes, it's, a, it's about a New York City where the only career left is marketing, and every single person works in marketing. <laughs> I want to tell you that it's really funny. So, you know, but I also think it has oh, some insights that people might enjoy. I think, I think it's a really funny book. Well, you know, I'm Jewish, so there's a certain deadpan delivery that, you know, translates into humor because of all those Woody Allen movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> How often have you seen Woody Allen on the streets of New York? I have a great story about that. My father, who we had a very terrible relationship, but in the last three years of his life, he was demented and paralyzed. And he could not remember anything. And one time I was sitting with him in the park. He was in a wheelchair. And he thought I was his cousin. And he thought that his parents were still alive, and he didn't remember what he had done for a living. I mean, he didn't know anything. And, you know, all of a sudden, Woody Allen walked by, and my father said, Look, there's Woody Allen. Hi, Woody. (laughs) I thought, wow, this guy has lost every single thing except his identity as a New Yorker. He doesn't even know what he himself did for a living, but he can identify Woody Allen. Well, you know, it makes sense to me. Did Woody say hello or even hear your father? I think he kind of grunted. You know, I mean, you know, like in New York, you know, you see famous people all the time and nobody bothers them because it's part of being a New Yorker. Right. So I've seen him all over the place my whole life, and he he kind (laughs) of grunts a little. Uh But, you know... His, I, you know, I, I connect with it with his movies profoundly. So, there's something I really understand there, even though he's homophobic and sexist and all that crap. But there's something, there's something that I understand. What's um one of the most fun or notable celebrity sightings you've had in New York? Well, I guess the most notable one was in the summer of 1968. My parents, because when we were kids, you know, we didn't have a car because I grew up in the city. In fact, I had never, I didn't know, I had never seen a garage, actually, until I was much older. But my father had borrowed his brother's car, and we had gone to the beach on Long Island, and we stopped at, a, um, like, a Tasty Cream. I forgot what they used to be called, but, like, a soft-serve ice cream place. Mm-hmm. And it was just us, and we're standing there, and this big limousine pulls up, and who steps out but Richard Nixon, <laughs> because he was campaigning. And my my family were Eugene McCarthy people. <laughs> so we all had our little Eugene McCarthy buttons on. And my and Richard Nixon came over to to campaign us. And my mother refused to shake his hand. <laughs> the greatest moment of her life. Did he look perturbed, or did he just move on? Yeah, he looked perturbed, and then he ordered a pineapple sundae, and he got back in the limousine. Well, he wasn't going to eat it there, right in front of you, after you. No, I guess he ate it in the limo. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. 
My father used to like to stop celebrities on the street and have them shake hands with us so we could later say that we met them. Yeah, I like that. So one time, like, he stopped James Baldwin, and we shook hands with him. Wow. So one time we were in the Date Shopwell, which is like an old-style New York supermarket, and there was this old man there, and he was buying cottage cheese. My father said, look, that's Alexander Kerensky. He was the head of the Menshevik government of Russia after the revolution, but before the Bolsheviks took over. Oh, my God. And there he was buying cottage cheese. And my father said, look, he used to be the ruler of Russia. Now he can't even chew. <laughs> now, do strangers come up to you on the street and say, are you Sarah Shulman? Sometimes. I get a contact at least once a week. So it's either on the street, usually it's by email. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it's, you know, uh, a letter. But I get about once a week, I get a positive contact from an unknown person. And do they rain, are they all over the map, or do most of them say, oh, I'll never forget after Dolores, or I'll never forget people in trouble, or rap Bohemia? It's usually that they say that something that I wrote reflected a truth that they were experiencing that they had not seen reflected before, and that that was meaningful to them. Gosh, that must be really meaningful for you, too. Sure. Oh Kidding? That's what, that's what it's all about. I know. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm very, very grateful for it because, you know, on the other hand, I get a lot of disrespect from powerful people. So to get the people who I'm actually describing, saying that it felt authentic to them is, you know, extremely meaningful. It's healing. Yeah. Does it make it almost all worthwhile? <laughs> uh, no. But it, it's very worthwhile. Uh-huh. Well, Sarah Shulman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Andy. Good luck. Well, thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. And there you have it, my interview with Sarah Shulman. You know, as her friend, I'm impressed not only by her immense talent and her important artistic output, but also because she happens to be one of the kindest and most generous people that I know. Thanks again, Sarah. Now, I need you listeners to contact me via email or voicemail to let me know that you're listening. Please send an email to andy at andystreasuretrove.com. I will write you every every day. Thank you, dear. And please call my listener call-in line at 415-508-4084 and leave a message for me or for my audience. Let's listen to some recent messages. Hello, little Andy. It's got to be some story, eh, Andy? So if you got anything to hide, Andy, hide it now. Now look, Andy, we don't want any riots. You know the powder keg we're sitting on. I don't get you, Andy. I don't get you, Andy. I don't get you, Andy. Listen, I'm sure you can do better than these folks. Please let me hear from you. Now, I'm not sure if my next episode will be about, say, the TV series Dark Shadows and the Dark Shadows fan convention that I attended in Los Angeles or about the great comedy duo Bob and Ray with an interview with Bob Elliott. Or maybe we'll talk with Dr. Andrew Weil about how LSD helped him cure his allergies, and also about how your mind, with or without psychedelic supplements, can heal your body. If you have a preference as to which episode will come next, please email or call me and let me know. Until you hear from me again, be good to each other. All rights reserved. Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions. <laughs>